0: Parashat Bahalotcha We're going to look at the appointment of Shiv'im Zekenim The 70 elders Who were appointed They were mentioned in Parashat Yitro In terms of the Zekenim Who accompanied Moshe Rabbeinu uh, To the revelation at Sinai But we know that that group Of 70 70 Zekenim First of all we know nothing about how they were chosen So We know nothing about that group of 70 as to, you know, who they were and how they were made up. We know nothing about that. Okay, that's the first thing to realize. The second thing to realize is that the Midrash tells us that they were all killed. Because, uh, you know, we we know the story of the Egel, of the golden calf. And uh, M- Moses wasn't there. He'd gone up Mount Sinai. And they were very eager for... Um, you know, for the golden calf to be formed, to be created. And they went round to various people. Eventually, they got to Aharon and Aharon was not killed because he assisted them in the creation, in the formation of the golden calf. But the Midrash tells us that the 70 zakenim, the 70 elders who were at Mount Sinai, the Revelation, were killed and died at that point. Now, we're a couple of years later and Moshe Rabbeinu is instructed to form a new as it were council of elders so let's have a look Um, it's the first it's the first source on your source sheet the source sheet is available online as well for those of you are listening uh, online on the website Um, it's in bamidbar chapter 11 i've chosen the four relevant psukim they're actually divided Um, they're divided up there's some psukim in between it's not important God said to Moses, Assemble for me seventy men, Mizikne Israel of the elders of Israel, Asher Yadata Kihem Ha'am, whom you know to be the people's elders and officers, El Take them to the Ohelmo'ed, Moed, the, as we call it the Tent of Meeting, which was the sanctuary of the Mishkan. And they shall stand there with you. I will come down and speak with you. And I will increase the spirit that is upon you. Spirit here being a reference to the prophecy, to his ability to communicate with God. Somehow they were being turned into prophets. The Samti Alehem, and I will bestow it upon them. The Nasu'ithaba They will bear the burden, bear the burden of the people. Together with you, so that you do not need to bear it alone. So this is really a continuation of the story that we heard in Parashat Yitro, the beginning of Yitro, where Moshe's father-in-law says, you can't do it all by yourself. It's not possible for you to do all of this by yourself. You need help. And this is a um, realization of that instruction that Yitro had an instruction or gave an instruction to Moshe or advice to Moshe and Moshe is now um, carrying that out by direct um, application or instruction from God so what he needs to do let's just go over it he needs to choose 70 people who are the 70 people we don't know so you're going to say well we don't need to know we don't need to list 70 names excuse me we just counted all the people or, you know, all the different families from the Jewish nation in Bamidbar and Nassau. We spoke about all the different families and we named all of them. So it's not like we can't name the Zikeinim. It seems there's a deliberate policy here not to name the Zekinim. We're going to get into that in a minute. Let's just continue the next two Psukim, which come a little bit later. Moses went out. et divrei Hashem. And he told them what God had said. And he assembled 70 men of the elders of the people. He followed the instruction that God had gave him. And he stood them around the tent. God descended in a cloud or um, some type of cloud formation. And he spoke to him, to Moses. And he increased some of the spirit, Asha'allah that was on Moshe, but he ten ashivish, and he gave it or bestowed it upon the seventy men, Hazakenim, the elders, Bahe Kennah, Alay Maruach, Vaisnabu Veloya yasafu. And when the spirit rested upon them, upon them, they prophesied. But you know what? They didn't continue. It was a moment in their lives when they received direct prophecy from God or the ability to prophesy. That was not something which was perpetuated. Their qualifications for being on this group of 70 was not prophecy. It was wisdom and the fact that they had been chosen. So these were the wisest scholars of Israel. I'm not sure what scholarship meant at that particular moment in time, but people that Moshe Rabbeinu could trust and at that particular moment when they were chosen, they received this incredible ability to prophesy, but that was not something which was perpetuated. We're going to come back to that later. So I've actually departed from my norms this week. I've not just um, quoted a whole bunch of um, sources and reproduced them here. I've actually amalgamated, I've combined different um, sources, commentaries on this particular incident in Jewish history in in the Torah. Um, And I've put it together in such a way that we can have all the information in one place because you have little snippets here and little snippets there. Um, Some of them are we're going to we are going to read a Gemara. But uh, the, some of them quote the Gemara, some of them don't. Some of them up, come up with different answers. I wanted to put it all together just to uh, keep it uh, tidy, keep it neat. OK, so the question is, um, the question really is, how does one choose 70 elders from 12 tribes and keep everybody happy? OK, is a good question, right? We're not we're not calling here for volunteers. Everybody wants to be everybody wants to have their representative. There's twelve tribes. So we spoke last week about the fact that God deliberately wants there to be twelve tribes. He does want there to be people who have different qualities and different strengths within the system. But then they have to be treated equitably. They have to be treated fairly. Does seventy divide up by twelve? Huh? No, either five or six, right? We're going to see in a minute, but not exactly So you, you're going to have some tribes who are going to be Huh? Who are either one more or one less, right? So when Moses chose princes when he chose Nasi'im Over the Jewish nation, it's mentioned in Bamidbar, the beginning of Bamidbar how many, how many princes are there over the tribes? Twelve. Why? Because there's twelve tribes or he chose spies to spy out the land That's going to be coming up in Parshat Shlachlecha next week. How many spies did he choose? Twelve. Why? Because there's twelve tribes. Or he chose officials to divide up the land. I won't expect you to know this, but you can guess based on the first two. In Parshat Mas'ei, the end of Bamidbar, how many did he choose? Twelve. Why? Because each tribe needed to have somebody represent their interests in terms of dividing up the land of Canaan. But this is not his choice. God explicitly indicated to him which People should fulfill these roles and not only did he choose not only did he choose 12 they were named and God was the one who gave him the instruction as to who he should choose but for the 70 elders chosen to assist Moshe in his spiritual leadership God did not tell Moshe who to choose nor really how to choose them he said what they should be but he didn't say what's the process what the process should be in order to pick these 70 people but only what did he say assemble for me 70 men of the elders of israel whom you know to be the people's elders and officers you know sometimes when you're in public life and somebody gives you an instruction you can Um, Consider, reflect on that instruction and say back to the person who's giving you the instruction, You're setting me up to fail, right? This seems like one of those moments. I'm not saying that God is a normal person who's trying to set Moshe um, up to fail, God is God. But this seems like an abortive process because he's being asked to pick 70 people, right? And he's being told to pick them out of a, uh, you know, a group that's made up of 12 different entities and he has to do so in such a way that they're not all going to end up squabbling or being jealous of each other so what did Moshe do to be as inclusive as possible while at the same time keeping the number 70 now i did say to you earlier that the 70 that we had at mount sinai we don't know how they were formed i'm going to i'm going to um Offer you an imaginary explanation. In other words, this is from my imagination. I, I haven't seen this anywhere. I'm making an assumption. That the 70 elders in Egypt were not necessarily chosen from the tribes. At that point, it wasn't a tribal system. They were the Jewish nation who had been enslaved by Pharaoh. And it could even be that those 70 people were chosen by Pharaoh. We don't know. We know that there were Zekeinim who accompanied Moshe Rabbeinu when he went to appeal for the Jewish nation's release. We know that. Those Zekeinim could have been people chosen by the nation. It could have been people chosen by Pharaoh. They weren't distinguished by their family origins. That's clear. But here, God is instructing Moshe to choose the first ever council of sages. In a situation where he's bound to fail he's bound to make someone upset so how does that work and what does moshe rabbeinu do to mitigate this situation what would be your suggestion before you look at the Gemara and sanhedrin come on we all do it it's called an election it's called an election right that we have how many candidates do we have so you're going to see, you're going to have 72 candidates and 70 winners. That's what Moshe Rabbeinu does. Look at the Gemara. We'll read the translation of the Gemara. It's, it's a Gemara in, um, in Sanhedrin, Daf Yud When God said to Moses, gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, Moses said, how shall I do it? Right? It's his first response. If I select six from each and every tribe, there will be a total of 72, which will be two extra. But if I select five from each and every tribe, there will be a total of 60, right? So it's minus 10 from the 70 that you need, right? And if I select six from this tribe and five from that tribe, I'll bring about envy between the tribes as those with fewer representatives will resent the others. So what did he do? He selected six from every tribe and he brought 72 slips. He didn't write their names on the slips. On 70, he wrote, he wrote Zaken, elder, and he left two blank. He mixed them up and placed them into a box. And he then said to the 72 chosen candidates, so there were 72, six from each tribe, he says, come and draw your slips. Everyone who picked out a slip that said elder, he said to them, heaven has already sanctified you, right? Kvar kidcha shamayim. That's what he would say to them. And everyone, or the two who picked out a blank slip, he said to them, Hamakom bach, ani ma He says, obviously, it was decided in heaven that you're not going to be the candidate. What do you want me to do? In other words, he took himself out of the situation because a lottery, an election, it, this somehow is, it, you know, it's luck. Seventy people are obviously going to pick out one which says, a paper which says Zaken on it, but two are not. Uh, Whose fault is that? Is that Moshe Rabbeinu's fault? No, it was luck of the draw, as they say. So he managed to extricate himself out of the situation by turning it back over to God. Whoever God chooses, the seventy that God chooses, those are the ones who are going to be the Zaken. And the two who were not chosen can't blame anyone else but the luck of the draw. Who were those two? Does anyone know who they were? No, because we don't know the names. But actually we do, because we have, and I'm going to get, hopefully get to that a bit later. There was two people who remained in the camp. Their names were Eldad and Medad. Okay, we're going to get to Eldad and Medad later. But first let's deal with this number situation, because we have here a very puzzling dichotomy. I'm going to... I put here a little box on page two. Although what I've just said, this Gemara, explains how Moshe chose 70 elders, it prompts another question. Why was it necessary to insist on the number 70? Would it not have been better to choose 72 and keep things equal between the tribes? Right? It would have been a much better idea. Why did God give him this instruction to create 70? He came up with a very creative solution, but he came up with the creative solution. Because he needed to resolve this problem between 72 and 12. But why didn't God just tell him, pick 72? Um, in every other situation, God had always kept the balance between the tribes, right? He'd chosen 12 and a Siem, he chose 12 um, spies. There was, we talked about Parshat masseh there's 12. There's always a very specific focus on the fact that there has to be equality between the tribes. Why not do the same with the elders? What is so important about the number 70? So that is really um, the question I'm going to deal with first in this rather long um, uh, piece, which I've got a source number six, which is a combination of various different commentaries that I've put together as one piece and you can use it. It's eminently usable. It talks about the um, specific numbers 12 and 70. What are the origins of the number 12 and what are the origins of the number 70? I'm going to ask you an important question. I spoke about it last week. And I think I've mentioned it a number of times before. How many tribes are there in Israel? How many? How many tribes are there in Israel? Twelve? Twelve. Okay, so how many tribes are there in Israel? We're going to work through it now. Reuven, Shimon, Levi, Yehuda. Don, Naphtali, God, Osher, Yosef, Benjamin. Right? There's twelve. Are there really twelve? What happened to Yosef? He was divided into two, so you have Ephraim and Menashe. So how many do you have? You have thirteen. You have 13 tribes. You don't have 12 tribes. So what happens? Why do we always talk about the 12 tribes of Israel? How many stones are there on the Choshen Mishpat? Yeah. 12. So is, are there, is there an Ephraim and a Menashe, Or is there a Levi and a Yosef? You ever thought of that? There's 12 stones on the breastplate. Is there an Ephraim and a Menashe, Or is there a Levi? I'm going to answer you the question. Because I, I can see that none of you know. There's a, there's a Levi and a Yosef. What about Ephraim and Manasseh? They're included in Yosef. We don't need to have Ephraim and Manasseh if we have Yosef. So what, how many tribes are there in the camp that encircles the Mishkan? Right. There's 12. So what happens to Levi? So Levi separated out. The Levi has their own encampment around the Mishkan, right? So is there 12 or are there 13? So the answer really is that we are very married to this idea of there being 12 tribes. In any situation where we need to include Levi, there's 12 and Ephraim and Manasseh become Yosef. In any situation where we don't include Levi, what do we do? We turn Yosef into Ephraim and Manasseh. Why? Why can't we just have 11? What's the big deal? Why is 12 such an important number? So I've, I just asked you a question about 70. I can ask you the same question about 12. It's not an important number because it should be 13. By the way, he would have had a problem choosing 70 out of 13 as well. I mean, I'm not going to get into the math of it, but clearly the numbers 70 and 12 are important numbers. So my question to you is why? Why are these two numbers important? I want you to know something. and You see this a lot in the Torah. Numbers are very important. Don't imagine that numbers are random. We once had a shear about the count of the Jewish nation. Do you remember that shear? I think a couple of years ago. The shear was how is it possible that the number 600,000 was almost exactly the same 40 years apart? How does that make any sense? How does it make any sense that the second count of the Jewish nation is the same as the first count? six hundred? It's always 600,000. So 600,000 is clearly a very important number. How is it that all the numbers are always exactly rounded up? Okay, so for example, the number 600,000 is actually 600,000. Um, 603,550, that's the number in the Torah of the, of the adult males from the 12 tribes, including Ephraim and Menashe, but not Levi, um, of adults between 20 and 60. That's the number. Why is it such an important number? Why is 20 and 60 an important number? When does a person become a man? 13, right? A man becomes a man, but 13. So why 20? Why not from 13? Why did the Levium get counted between 30 and 50, ages 30 and 50? and not between 20 and 60. By the way, I'm not going to answer all these questions today. I'm only highlighting the fact that numbers play a very significant role in the Torah. And we know, for example, that all the letters of the Jewish alphabet have a number value. And that although we don't don't, um, derive Halakha from numbers, we do derive a lot of information from numbers. So, if something has a numerical value, it is very significant. I'm going to give you two examples that you're familiar with. How many people here have heard that when you give tzedakah, you should give it in 18s? Why do we give it in 18s? Because chai, life, has the numerical value, yud chet, chet yud, of 18. So, we give 18, we give 36, we give 72, right? There's another number, significant number in Jewish tradition the value 26 the value of the name of god yud K vav K ke, is value yud 10 5 he is 5 vav is 6 he is 5 is 26 26 is a very important number why are they important why 27 is not such an important number nor is 19 i mean maybe for the paul hardcastle song 19 but it's not important in jewish tradition why isn't it important I'm not going to answer that question, but I am going to examine the importance of the number 12, the significance of the number 12 and the significance of the number 70 in Jewish tradition. I'm going to reveal something to you which is buried, it's embedded in the narratives of the Torah. And unless you know it, you don't know it. And you think, well, there was 12 tribes. There's not. I've told you there's 13. And you're going to think that 70 makes a lot of sense. It makes no sense at all. It should be 72 or 60. So why do we have 70 and why do we have 12? Let's have a look at what I've written here. Source number six. The Jewish people is divided in two different ways. There is a division into 12 and there is a division into 70. The number 12 is the main number. Either we count 12 sons of Jacob or alternatively, anywhere the tribe of Levi is not counted, Menashe and Ephraim are counted as two separate tribes, in order to preserve the number 12. But the number 70 is also a very important number, although it features less prominently than 12. In Vayigash, when Jacob, Yaakov and his family went down to Egypt, the Torah detailed everyone who went to Egypt. The number was? What was the number? How many people went down to Egypt? Shivim Nefesh, we say it in the Haggadah. 70 souls went down to Egypt. By the way, do you think it was 70? You know that the Rashi has to come up with a whole cheshbon, how Yosef and his two sons went out of Egypt and met Yaakov outside Egypt because actually the number of people who's counted is 67, which means that you need another three in order to bring it up to 70. So Yosef went with Ephraim and Manasseh out to meet Jacob, so 67 becomes 70, so that 70 souls can come into Egypt. What about their wives? We don't mention their wives, so already the 70 is not a real number. So how is it that 70 is 70? What's so important about 70? We'll get to that. In Pinchas, when the tribes were designated for entry into the land, this was the moment when each tribe was told that they were going to get a portion. The nation at that point was counted according to their families, besides for being counted as 12 tribes. Some of the families match the name of those who were counted in Vayigash, who came with Yaakov, but many of those who went to Egypt do not appear as family names listed in Pinchas. In Vayigash, it is mainly Jacob's grandchildren plus five great-grandchildren. In Pinchas, there are 16 uh, um, great-grandchildren, sorry, 16 grandchildren, three great-grandchildren and six great-great-grandchildren. But despite the differences between these two sources in the Torah, guess what? Both end up with the same total. 70. How many families are there in Pinchas who are going to get portions in the land of Canaan? 70. How do they match up with the list in Vayigash? They don't. But the number is the same. So what's significant here? Is it the names or is it the number? What's significant about the 12 tribes? Is it the names or the number? The number is significant. Suddenly... You you know, our Western minds don't think this way. We, we um, We are very excited about the details behind a number. That's what matters to us. Here you have to think like a bean counter. You have to be an accountant here. This is not actually about the details. It's not the line item. It's the number that matters. Don't give me the facts. Don't confuse me with facts. Because it's not about the facts. We see the facts in Va'yigash are one thing, and the facts in Pinchas are something else completely. But what what um, combines the two? What matches up the two? The number. The number is seventy, the same as the tribes. Don't confuse me with Levi, Yosef, and Ephraim, um, uh, Yosef, Ephraim and Manasseh. It doesn't matter when Levi's excluded. It's no problem because we can add Ephraim and Manasseh and it brings it back up to 12. What does that tell you? The number is important. Now we need to know why the number is important. The people of Israel are composed of 12 tribes and 70 families. That's what we need to remember. That's the important fact here. Who the 12 tribes are and who the 70 families are is not important. These two numbers correspond to something else. The number 12 appears in Abraham's family three times so this is a family number the number 12 is a family number look at look at what i put together here at the end of vayera the children of nahor abraham's brother are enumerated milka had eight sons and Ruma had four sons what's the total 12 8 and 4 is 12 at the end of Sora, Ishmael's sons are listed. How many sons did Yishmael have? Twelve sons. At the end of Ayishlach, the descendants of Esau are named. Once again, the total number, I'm not going to go into the details, the total number is twelve. So twelve is a significant number in the family. Meanwhile, the number 70 is also symbolic. What does it correspond to? The 70 nations of the world, the descendants of Noach. So in our family, the, you know, every yin has a yang. I'm not sure I'm meant to say that as a rabbi, but I'll say it anyway. Every yin has a yang. So what's the yang when it comes to tribes in our family? Twelve. What's the yang when it comes to nations of the world? Seventy. Look, look! what I've written here. When the Israelites left Egypt, one of the first places they reached was a place called Elim. The Torah tells us this is a, it's a Posuk in Shmois, They came to Elim. Guess what? There were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees. I bet you've read that posuk before a few times, and you never noticed those numbers. There's seventy palm trees and there's 12 springs of water so you're gonna think it's okay it's random Rabbi Dana just came up with this because it proves his point you know it's like the mentalist at the uh, at the Houdini estate right no 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 look at this it's not random in Parsha's Mase, all the journeys in the wilderness are summarized remember the beginning of Mase, and they went from here they went there they came there and they left there and they went somewhere else But there's no additional details so for example it says they came to mount sinai they stayed there and then they left mount sinai and they went wherever they went even the giving of the torah is not described in this list of places that they went to there's only one stop in the whole journey on all the many journeys that they went on that is described in any detail guess what one it is That's the only one that's described in detail. You don't believe me, you can open the chumash and have a look. They came to Elim and guess what they found in Elim? They found 70 palm trees and 12 springs of water. By the way, why do we need to know this? Why do we need to know this? I stayed in a hotel in Eilat and it had 12 floors. Who cares? Does it really matter? And do you know how many palm trees they had around the pool? 70. I don't need to know. It's not important. It's not important information. It doesn't seem important. That means the Torah, we're so used to the Torah giving us important information, that when the Torah gives us information, we imagine it's important, but actually we skip over it, because we just think we don't know what the importance is. But the Torah doesn't give us this information once, it gives it twice. And the second time it gives us the information, it gives us the information in a place where no other information is given. Why are we given this information? What is the significance of these two numbers? We already know the answer, right? The importance is the symbolism of the numbers. The people of Israel, as opposed to the sons of Nachor, Ishmael and Esav, are not only divided by 12, but also by 70. And here's the point. Turn to page 3. Every negative needs a positive to counteract it. Within the Abrahamic family, it is the number 12 that needs to be counteracted. Corresponding to the nations of the world... The number is 70. That number has nothing to do with the 12 tribes. You see here what the problem was? He had to choose Zekanim, but the number he had to choose was 70 because it had nothing to do with the 12 number. The problem was the pool of people that he had to choose the 70 from was divided into 12. So he had to devise a method of creating a group of 70 people that we need. Why do we need it? It is our counterbalance with the nations of the world. The Zakanim, They're the ones who carry the wisdom and the spirituality of the nation to counteract the nations of the world. They're not the spiritual representatives. They're not the kohanim. The kohanim, they deal with the temple duty. They are the people who represent the nation in terms of counterbalance against the nations of the world. How many, symbolically, by the way, there's 193 members of the United Nations. Okay, so we don't have this number 70 is, I wouldn't say a random number. It's a number that the Torah has produced as a representation of all the nations of the world. Whether that number is 68 or 193 is not important. It's a representation of the spiritual forces of the nation of, nations of the world. There are 70. Name me those 70. It's not, I can't name them to you. In the same way as I can't name the 70 who came with Yaakov Avinu, why it's 70. And we know that doesn't even match up the names in Parshat Pinchas. ...of those who are going to inherit, because it's not about the names. It's about the number. The number is the nations of the world. It's a code. It's embedded into the Torah as a code. The code for the nations of the world is the number 70. The code for the people within the family, our family that's problematic, is 12. So we need 70 zakenim, and we need 12 tribes. And when we have an extra tribe, don't worry, we don't. We just, we just deal with that. We just make Yosef into one again. It's not important. And when we don't have the names of the 70, it's okay. We'll devise a method where from the 12 tribes, we will get 70 people. Okay, but it is going to leave two people a little bit upset. Even if their tribe is not going to be upset, they are going to be upset. So, what's the story? What happened? Who were the Zakanim? We don't know. We don't know one name of the 70, but we do know, very interestingly, n- the name of the two, either who were excluded or potentially excluded themselves. So the Talmud debates this. I haven't, I haven't reproduced that particularly. It's going to come up in, in the Orachim, so I didn't want to produce, because there's so much information here. I just didn't want to overburden you with information. But we're going to read the Psukim about Eldad and Medad. Two extraordinary people who are mentioned in the Torah as having been part of this group somehow, and they began to prophesy in the camp. Look at what it says. So, after this situation where the 70s of Canaan were chosen, two men remained in the camp. Medad, the name of one was Eldad and the other one was called Medad. And the Spirit rested upon them. They were among those written. What does that mean? They were among those written. So it sounds like, from what we saw in the Talmud, that they were on the slips of paper. That they were written, but then they're in the camp. So what are they doing in the camp? Why were they in the? Why weren't they at the Ohel Moed? The camp is far away from the Ohel Moed, right? So what were they doing there? So Behemabaktuvim is is a source of debate in the Talmud. They did not go to the tent to the Ohel Moed, but they prophesied in the camp. Continues the pasuk, the next pasuk, pasuk Chavzayin. The lad ran and told Moses, who's the lad? Possibly Yahshua, possibly not, because Yahshua is going to be mentioned in a moment. But somebody came and snitched. Told Moshe Rabbeinu, uh, uh, these two people, they're in the camp, they're, they're saying prophecy. Vayomar, Eldad and Meidad are prophesying in the camp. What a chutzpah. Right? That's what it sounds like. He's hes telling hes telling Moshe Rabbeinu, Terrible. Vayahan Yehoshua binun. And Yehoshua binun answered. Who's he answering? It sounds like he's answering the boy. But it's possibly him as well. And the word means something else. Either way, he who was Yehoshua? Mesharet Moshe. He was Moses' attendant. He looked after Moses. Mibuchurav from his appointed um, lads. Right? From the people who were around Mibchurav. He was, from his youngest age, he'd been the one who'd always looked after Moshe Rabbeinu. And if he was a Chassidish Rebbe, you would say he was the Gabba. Okay? and he said, Adoni Moshe Kelaem. And he answered, Moses, my master, imprison them. You know the modern Hebrew word, Kela, means jail. Right? Kela means jail. From here, Kelaem. Put them in jail, imprison them. Strange. What's strange about this? Who did the lad come and tell? Moshe, what's Yeshua got to do with it? Didn't we have a halacha? That you're not allowed to say a halacha in front of your rabbi? Why, why did he blurt out this, you know, this statement? Moses, imprison them. It's it his business, the guy came to Moses. He should wait for Moses to answer, right? Moshe Rabbeinu should tell us what to do with Eldad and Medad. We're going to see more about this. Vayomer Lo Moshe. And Moses gave him one of the most incredible responses that Moses ever gave anyone in the whole Torah. He says the most amazing thing. You want to talk about humility. And by the way, at the end of Balotra we talk about Moses being the most humble man who ever lived. Talk about an exercising humility. So just before I tell you what Moshe Rabbeinu said, Imagine somebody is the prophet of the nation. And somebody comes to them and says, somebody else is prophesying in the camp. What would their response be? What well, Yehoshua said, better put them in jail because they're endangering my position. I'm going to lose my power. I'm the prophet of God. And these people are prophesying in the camp. I'm done with. I'm finished. My life is over. Look what he says. ha Are you zealous for my sake? Wouldn't it be wonderful if all the Lord's people were prophets? And the Lord would bestow upon them his spirit. Is that incredible? And is certainly in the context of Korach. In a couple of weeks time we're going to see this argument he had with Korach. Look at Mashrabeinu. Look who he is. I'm not interested in this. Don't imagine that I enjoy these, uh, uh, the prophecy that I get. If only we could democratize prophecy and everybody could become a prophet. Don't be zealous on my behalf. Did Eldad and Medad go to jail? No, they didn't go to jail. So who were Eldad and Medad? What is going on here in this? Um, why is the fellow running up to the camp? And telling Moshe, I'm sorry, running up to the Ohel Moed and telling Moshe that they are prophesying. Why would Moshe care? And what is this exchange between Yahushua and Moshe? We're going to look at the Orachaim. He's not the only commentary. I've, I've taken certain liberties with the translation, so you must forgive me. It's taken from an existing translation, but I'm never happy with existing translations. I'm always tinkering. I am a constant tinkerer. Even as I look at the translation after it's already been printed out, I'm already thinking of things I could have done differently. Meanwhile, if you look at the original text, you'll say, but Rabbi Dan has changed things from the original text. So I've left the original Hebrew text in there, paragraph by paragraph, and you can check the original text in Hebrew. If you're not satisfied that my translation is correct, you'll find that it's in keeping with the original Hebrew but that I've, I've modified it because I just want to make it more presentable. Let's look at the Chaim. What does he say? Firstly, what is the meaning of they remained? What does it mean that they that they remained? Relative to whom and to what did they remain? What is the word Vayish'aru telling us? Secondly, why did the Torah have to mention the names of these two men when none of the 70 elders were named, though they were chosen and these men were not? Remember what I said earlier. We don't know the names of the 70 and we know these two people's names. Who's more significant? The 70. So why do we know the names of the two and not the names of the 70? It's Orachaim's question. Thirdly, why does the Torah say that the spirit rested on them? Okay. So if you look at the Pasuk, it says, What is the Torah telling us with that? If the men were part of the 70 elders who were selected, what is the Torah adding that we did not know before? So the assumption here, by the way, is based on the Talmudic debate as to whether they were part of the 70, but they chose not to come to the Ohel MOED. So if they were part of the 70, there's no chidush, there's nothing new, novel, that the Torah is telling us by telling us that the Tanakh Alei Ruach. Obviously, if they were part of the 70, they were included in that, in that ruach being given to them. If they were not part of the seventy elders the Torah had spoken about, why would they be granted prophecy, seeing that God told Moses to select only seventy men? So according to the other side of the debate in the Talmud, as to whether or not, they were they the two who drew the blank pieces of paper, would have drawn the blank pieces of paper, had they gone up? If they were those two, why would they get the Ruach? We were told there were only going to be 70. It sounds like there were 72. So that's the third question. Fourthly, what is the meaning of the words, Remember that question? So what they were in the written. So we assumed it must mean that they were on the Petek. They were on the voting slip, right? On the lottery ticket, whatever you want to call it. But what does it actually mean? Fifth, why did the Torah say that they did not go out? If they have been reported as remaining, if it says, then obviously, V'lo it's, it's telling us the same information in two different ways. You know, you have to be a great expert. If you're a politician, you have to be a great expert in saying things in many different ways that mean the same thing. Right? right. So you say, I stayed where I was. I never went out. What do you mean? You said you stayed where you were. So obviously you never went out. Why is the Torah telling you? The Torah is not a politician. The Torah is telling us information. And also, so why is it telling it to us twice? So some, there's something going on. There's some undercurrent here which the Torah is conveying to us but not in, in an exact way. No. Now, why did the Torah write at the end of the verse they prophesied inside the camp? The Torah, so it should have said So why is it saying it's at the end of the verse? The Torah should have written the verse in the following order. Two men who were amongst those whose names had been suggested as prospective elders, did not go out to the Mishkan, the Spirit came upon them, and they prophesied. So the Pasuk is written in a very weird order. Should, it should have been written in a different way. Va'yitnab'u should have come after V'atanach haruach Va'yitnab'u ba'machaneh Velo yatsua may I don't know. The order is wrong. Va'yitnab'u Machaneh seems to be out of place. Why did the Torah jumble up this verse? So if you turn now to page four. All right, just turn the page over. The sages debated the identity and character of these men who were left behind. According to some, they were the two who were left out, out of the total of 72, who Moses had invited to take part in the draw for the selection of a total of 70. So remember, there was always going to be two unlucky candidates of the 72, it's a very unfair election, can you imagine that? Usually we have, you know, um, in, in the UK, there's an interesting system that uh, you don't elect a prime minister, you elect a member of parliament, right? The member of parliament who is head of the leading party becomes the prime minister. But it's also interesting that they have elected by constituency, so not like the Israeli system where you're elected on on a list, you're elected in a constituency. For example, when I grew up, the constituency next to the one I grew up in was Finchley. The candidate for Finchley was one Margaret Thatcher. And she was re-elected time after time. But what happens is, so she's elected by her constituents, however many constituents elect her, and it's it's a fascinating system. By the way, if she was not elected, then she wouldn't be the Prime Minister, even if her party won the most seats in the Parliament. Because she's not a member of Parliament. So they would have to choose someone else. Now, for example, you have this very interesting um, um, system that's going on, where the Prime Minister has resigned, and the Conservative Party is choosing a new leader, without a national election, and that leader is going to become a Prime Minister, even though they were never elected by the electorate to be the Prime Minister and will be the Prime Minister until the next general election. How does that work? Because nobody's really ever elected to be the Prime Minister. The party that wins the most seats nominates the leader of that party that then becomes the Prime Minister, okay? So, what happens, is very interesting, that in in the constituency where the Prime Minister is standing, there's always 20 candidates. Why? Because they get media attention. Because when the prime minister, whoever's going to be the prime minister, wins that seat, they're going, to get, they're going to be on TV. So you have the weirdest range of people who stand for election in the most prominent constituency, which you can identify by the person who is standing. Okay. But of the 20 candidates who would stand in Finchley every time there was an election, when Margaret Thatcher was standing, how many were elected? One out of 20. That's the way it works. What's so unusual about this system that was devised by Moshe Rabbeinu is that you had 72 candidates and 70 were elected. There were 70 winners out of 72. You can imagine that the two who were not chosen would be most upset to be excluded from this exclusive club. Right? So... Those two are the most identifiable face of failure in this election. Whereas the 19 candidates who stand alongside a candidate who wins in a prominent constituency in the UK, I mean, big deal. So, of course, that one won because that candidate is the most famous candidate and they won. And we got 107 votes. Right. And that one got 25,000 votes. But here the system is it's it is Um, weighted against only two people who are going to lose. So Eldad and Medad, potentially, says the Talmud, were those two people. They were the two who were excluded. So those two had drawn blanks and therefore had not been appointed as elders. But Rav Shimon has another Pshat. Rav Shimon in the Gemara, the Sifri, um, or it's Medrash Rabbah, says that two of the 70 men selected were so humble that they did not want to enter the Mishkan and preferred to stay behind in the Israelite camp. They were Eldad and Medad. According to this explanation, we can explain the verse as follows. Two men remained behind in the camp as they considered themselves superfluous. If you look now, look back at the Pasuk. It was deliberate. And giving their names, Um, but they were actually written down they would have been chosen had they gone up but they decided not to go it was a deliberate act on their part out of humility who identifies most with humility in the Torah Moshe Rabbeinu so he gets Eldad and Medad. by the way were they chosen or were they not chosen and did two people who did go to the tent Become the, we don't know the answer to that. That's why there is this debate in the Talmud. So we don't know if the 70 who went up were chosen and Eldad and Medad, because they excluded themselves, remained excluded, or whether there was two who went up and weren't chosen and they were chosen, which is why the Ruach went on them as well, even though they never went to the tent. We don't know the answer to that. There's another potential answer. That... that what? The Ruach came... From okay, before the duachshenim? Uh, uh, well, it says. They were in the duachshenim. That's why they got the ruach. But we, we would have assumed that the ruach is only going to work if, it, if they're in the Ohel Moed. So the Pasuk tells us, no, no, don't need to be in the Ohel Moed to get the ruach. They never went to the Ohel Moed, but they still got the ruach. Why? Because they were ones who should have got the ruach. But then they they have have be, yeah. uh, hmm? That's right, wouldn't, wouldn't happen to have happened But Moshe Rabbeinu only saw 70 people, and maybe he didn't even involve the, the, the petex, Maybe he didn't even involve the slips. Once he saw only 70 people came, he thought, okay, so two didn't come. That was their choice. They decided not to include themselves. So we have 70. We don't know the dynamics. The only thing that we know is that of the 72, two remained in the camp. Whether or not they were chosen, they still got the ruach. They still ma- they still achieved this level of prophecy. What was the prophecy? Is that important? Oh yeah, it's very important. You know what they said? Moshe Rabbeinu is going to die, and Yehoshua is going to be the next leader. That was the prophecy. It was true, huh? It was true, absolutely was true. And now you're beginning to see why Yeshua is getting nervous. Okay, this is forty years, thirty-eight years before Moshe Rabbeinu died. He, he was not even close to dying 38 years before he's right at the beginning of their time in the wilderness So he's he's uh, 82 years old, right? He's not dying very soon. It's not a prophecy that's imminent So this is the prophecy So why such a big to-do and that means if they stayed, that means that there were two false prophets in the cohort. Like what, what What is it? What are they saying? Who are they? Who are these people? We never heard of them before. Who are these people? So, um, how, do, how do you deal with people who are saying something that sounds rebellious and, you know, it could cause a tremendous amount of discord and they're saying it in the camp, by the way, think of it this way if they are the two who are excluded I mean, we don't know, we're just onlookers, they're the two who are excluded maybe they're like Korach don't We know that's right how, do we know the tribe where, where? I, um so it's interesting who is their family wow. according to the medrash they were moshe Benu's half brothers do you remember yoheved got divorced yes. from amram so he got married she got married and she had two children one was called eldad and one was called Medad. they were his half brothers i can't remember the tribe don't know which i can't remember which tribe it was so that's what the medrash says mm-hmm. they were actually related to him It's fascinating. So let's let's just go on. So the Torah gives their names to tell us that they were renowned for their modesty. Had they not been renowned for their modesty, the people would have told them off for refusing Moshe's invitation to high office, which included God granting them the Holy Spirit. Their refusal would have been public. Would have been chilul Hashem. Imagine two people are asked to do something. What should be their be their response if God asks them to do something? They should go nasa right? What's the exception to that rule? What is the exception to that rule in the Torah? Who's the one person who God asked to do something and didn't do it? Moshe Rabbeinu. By the way, it seems to be a family trait. <laughs> right? So Moshe Rabbeinu and Eldad and Medad share something in common. They're being asked to do something by God. And why are they refusing? So ordinary people refuse because they don't want to take on responsibility. Why are they refusing? Why did Moshe Rabbeinu refuse? He said, me Noichi, who am I? What are you choosing me for? You can't find anyone better? Really, you're scraping the bottom of the barrel? You came all the way here to see me a shepherd of sheep and I should lead the nation out of Egypt? Go and find someone else. Don't choose me. Elder and Medar get a knock on their door a big colorful invitation and what does the invitation say please come up to the ohel moed you are one of the 72 who might be one of the 70 who are going to be the zakenim for for the bene israel they looked at the invitation are you kidding me us are the entire jewish nation you're going to choose us forget it find someone else there's someone else better than us okay so the, the whole motivation here was one of humility which is why they are named so that we know who they are and that their motivation was that their refusal had they not wanted to go had they refused to go because they were as it were rebelling that would have been a achilol hashem it was their names that protected them against their conduct being interpreted negatively this is what the orachayim says as a result of their modesty they were granted prophecy even though they had remained in the camp as confirmation that their motives in remaining was acceptable. So the fact that they remained should have been negative. And the fact that they received, they were granted the Ruach, meant that God recognized that their motivations were pure. So it sounds like a kind of consolation prize. In other words... You are Nevi'im. You know why you're Nevi'im? Because you wanted to not be Nevi'im. You wanted to not be considered holy and special. You are. That's why you are holy and special. The Torah chose the expression Vatanach to indicate that whereas the other 70 elders experienced only a brief elevation to prophetic insights, these two men retained the spirit of prophecy that was granted to them. And that's why they're named, by the way. Because the other 70 were not ever prophets again. Remember what I said earlier? They were prophets for a few moments when the Ruach came into them. But afterwards they were just Zakenim, they were very wise people. And perhaps they had you know, divine inspiration from time to time. But uh, you know, as a general rule, they were not prophets. Eldad and Medad, having excluded themselves from that role, became full-time prophets for the remainder of their lives. Before mentioning the substance of their prophetic insights, the Torah mentions matters which cause the people to judge these men's behavior in a favorable light. Namely, that's why it says Vayitnab'u at the end. All the different uh, phrases in the Pasuk there are meant to help us understand that these people were justified, were pure, spiritual, etc. They were good people. And then at the end it says Vayitnab'u Bamachaneh. Before mentioning the substance, the Torah mentions matters which cause the people to judge these, these men's behavior in a favorable light. Namely, that their prophecy proved to be true. In order that we should not think that the words, refer to the slips of paper making up the lottery, the Torah says, lo They did not leave their residence to go to the Mishkan, even had they been entitled to do so. When they were nonetheless able to prophesy all of a sudden, this convinced their peers that they were worthy and had not insulted God by declining Moshe's invitation. So we have here a very interesting sidebar story. It's not even, you see the story of appointing the Zekanim is now eclipsed by a story of two very spiritual individuals. And it tells you something else. And we're going to see more of that when we look at Moshe's response tells us something else, which is, leadership in the Jewish nation and being considered special in Judaism is not to do with your title or your role. It's an interesting phenomenon and it persists to this day. You don't become the gadol hador necessarily because you lead the largest group of people. That's not the point. You know, they, they, um, I, when I was in Yeshiva, the great rabbi of the very Orthodox world was Rabbi Shach in Ponovich Yeshiva in B'Nabarak. Ponovich Yeshiva, one of the largest yeshivas in Israel, and he was always referred to as the Rosh Yeshiva. He's the Rosh Yeshiva of, um, of Ponovich. What does it mean to be the Rosh Yeshiva? What would you assume it means? that he is the person who makes all the big decisions regarding the yeshiva. Whether it's financial, whether it's uh, policy, you know, who to take into the yeshiva, who to throw out the yeshiva. He's the Rosh Hashiva, right? He was a pay- paid employee. The Rosh Hashiva was a man called Rabbi Kahanaman. And Rabbi Kahanaman, who was the son of the original founder of the yeshiva, the Ponevish Arov, was the Rosh Hashiva of Ponovish. Do you know what his most important function was? He never gave a shiur and he never gave any kind of public public declarations as to what the yeshiva was about. He went around the world collecting Amazing. money. He was a fundraiser. And Rav Shach, who had no role in the yeshiva other than to give a shiur, was considered the Rosh Yeshiva even though he was a, just a paid functionary. He was just a he was a teacher, was a lecturer in the yeshiva. The point is, I'm, I'm, I'm not in any way comparing it to Eldad and Meidad. I just want to convey this idea that in Judaism, the people who shine are not necessarily the people with power. The people who shine are the people who represent the essence of the spiritual message of Judaism. If they have the Ruach that God gave them, they're going to be the Gadol HaDor. Eldad and Medad, who stayed in the camp, who rejected the the appointment that uh, Moshe had dangled before them, they're the ones who get mentioned in the Torah. It's an unbelievable message. Whereas the 70 Zakinim who did become the Zakinim, who became the elders, we don't even know their names or anything about them. And the message is there in the Torah, it's embedded in the Torah. Don't run after power. Don't think that your status comes about as a result of a title that you have within the system. That's not the case at all. You, you're Eldad and medad That's who you need to be. Continues the Orachayim. Meanwhile, according to the opinion that Eldad and Medad were part of the 72 elders, the word Vayish'arul means that although two people whose names were Eldad and Medad were surplus and therefore remained in the camp, the spirit of prophecy came to rest on them nonetheless. So it means even though they had excluded themselves and they should have been part of the 70, despite the fact that they had not been allowed to proceed to the Mishkan or whatever it was, this was in addition to the 70 who had been given prophecy as described in verse 25. So we see there's there's another side to this that they were given the Ruach, even though they excluded themselves or were excluded, and they became, they became Nevi'im. The words Heima bachtuvim provide the justification for being given prophecy, as their names had ari- appeared in the original list of the 72. So just being on the list of 72 was sufficient excuse for them to be given the Ruach, even though they didn't make it into the final count of 70. Um, they, this made them fit to receive the prophetic spirit and so that we do not think that the words meant that they were part of the seventy 70th, the original 72. The Torah added that they never left their tents to go to the Mishkan to receive a portion of Moses' prophecy. Now beautiful little drush he presents to us, the Orachai. Okay? ve'derech drush, u'lay Shiyodia katuv Shahabet shelo yatz'u A homiletical approach to this paragraph is that the two candidates who drew blank pieces of paper in the lottery were initially upset about not having been chosen. As a result of their rejection, they had to return to the general camp after having first been part of the assembly at the Mishkan. They were actually so embarrassed that they went into hiding. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Out of 72 people, 70 are chosen, and you're the two who are not chosen. How are you going to feel? You're going to feel like a real nebuch. Like, who are the two biggest losers? It, right? You know, they're going to be, their pictures are going to be on CNN. The two losers of the day, Eldad and Medad. They went into hiding. They were ashamed. They were so ashamed. They were so embarrassed. When God saw how terribly ashamed they were at having been rejected, He granted them prophetic powers. The words v'hemma bakhtuvim mean that the reason they would not come out of hiding was that their names had originally appeared on the list of candidates and God compensated them for their disappointing experience. Okay, So that's another way of understanding the story. Now, now let's get to the na'ar. Five more minutes. Give me five more minutes. Why was the boy so upset that he told Moses that Eldad and Medad had prophesied? What bothered him about it? Even if he had good reason to tell Moses about it, why did he demand, Yeshua demand that they be locked up? Why should they be locked up? What, I, I want to ask you a question. Since when has prophecy been a punishable crime? Is being a prophet a felony? I'm, I, I, you can search the law books. I don't think so. According to the opinion that these two men were the, men were the ones who had been rejected out of the original 72 candidates, we can understand why he was upset. Moshe had told the Israelites there would be only 70, right? What happened? Now there were 72. What did that mean? There could only be two explanations for why Eldad and Medad were prophesying. Either Moshe had lied. That would be one explanation. Not good. The second explanation is they're false prophets. There's only two explanations here. If 72 was the pool. Seventy are chosen and these two have not been chosen and now they're prophesying in the camp. There's only two ways to understand that. Either Moshe is is a liar or they're false prophets. Either way, we need to deal with this right away. And according to the opinion, these two were included in the 70s. So there was another two who were rejected whose names we don't know. He was informing Moshe of a misdemeanor. What's the misdemeanor? That they had been told to come to the Mishkan and they failed to show up. I mean, imagine that. It's your first day at work. You've been chosen um, to, to join the Supreme Court. You've been received an instruction from the president, from the king, that you have to come to a particular place. You are a representative of the law and you stay at home and drink a cup of coffee and have a cigar. Mm-hmm. Is that an appropriate response to such an instruction? So th- the boy who's reporting to Moshe Rabbeinu says, listen, these guys are going to be Zakanin. They're not appropriate material. They'd been told to do it and they didn't show up. They were prophesying the regular camp. Eldad and Medad had committed two wrongs in that case. They ignored Moshe Rabbeinu's order and they refused to be recipients of Moshe Rabbeinu's prophecy and instead wished to receive prophecy directly from God. Because what what had been the promise that God had made that I will, re- I will take from your prophecy, Moshrabeinu, and give it to them. And they said, We don't want his prophecy. We want our own prophecy. So the way it could be interpreted is very negative. So this guy running to Moshrabeinu has every right to tell him that, you know, those two guys in the camp, they're going to cause a lot of problems because they're sending out the wrong vibes about this entire situation. And Joshua reacted. And what did he say? Adonim Moshe Kla'em. imprison them. They need to go to jail. Why would he have the right to make a halachic decision in the presence of his teacher? So it's very interesting. The Gemara in Erevin says, look it up, it's Samach Gimel. The Gemara in Erevin says, you're never allowed to decide halakha halacha in front of your Rebbe. And in fact, the punishment is, if you decide a halacha in front of your Rebbe, you won't have children. Okay? What's the proof? You're Yeshua. Sure. Yeshua is the proof. We have no record of Yeshua having had children. And he decided a halacha in front of his master. Whatever the motivation. By the way, he may have had very pure motivations. I assume he did. We're going to see in a minute what the motivations were. Keep your mouth closed. In front of your rebbe, keep your... Unless your rebbe says to you... This, by the way, I was taught in yeshiva. If your rebbe says to you, Can you tell me what halacha is in this situation? Then you're allowed to do it. You know that... um, one of my teachers in London was a man called Dian Michael Fisher, Rabbi Michael Fisher. He was a Dayan on the Federation Beit Din. He was an old man. By the time I got to know him, he was in his mid-80s. As a young man, he was the, we spoke about the Gabba, the shamus for the Chofetz Chaim in Raden Yeshiva. He used to look after him. Chofetz Chaim was a very old man in his 80s. And this Dain Fisher, as a young bocher, used to look after him. Anyway, after a few years, he decided he wanted to take Smicha, and he went to Grodna to become a rabbi. He wanted to get the rabbinic ordination from the rabbi of Grodna, whose name was Reb Shimon Shkop. Reb Shimon Shkop um, invited him for a Smicha examination, so that he could be ordained as a rabbi. So the young rabbi Fisher turns up to uh, Reb Shimon Shkop's house and Reb Shimon Shkop is sitting there with two other Dayonim of the Baisdin. He thinks, okay, so I'm going to be tested by three people. He says to this young man, he was maybe 20 years old, he says, now come and sit here next to us and all the cases that are going to come to us today, you're going to tell us, before we say anything, what you think the Haloha should be. That was his Smicha test. Not one day, not two days, three days. He sat next to Reb Shimon Shkop, deciding Haloha but not maybe not deciding, presenting his opinion as to what the halacha should be in every case that came before them. That was his smicha test, he passed it. And he became a very distinguished rabbi. You're not allowed to in halacha in front of your rabbi. You're just not allowed to do it. You have to wait for the rabbi to speak or to ask you. Yeshua didn't do that. The Talmud quotes our verse as its source. Perhaps we can explain that what Yeshua was doing by referring to Sifri on verse 26, where it says that Elder Demeda kept prophesying that Moshe would die and Yeshua would lead the Israelites into the Holy Land. When Yeshua heard these words, he resolved to take a stand in the presence of his teacher in order to demonstrate his displeasure with this prophecy. He believed that Elder Demeda were not fit to prophesy and that they were talking nonsense. In other words, as a student of Moshe Rabbeinu, he couldn't accept that Moshe Rabbeinu was going to die and that he was going to replace him. Therefore, they had to be false prophets. It made no sense to him. That, you know, In retrospect, it's very easy to find out whether a prophecy is true. They always quote um, um, Sam Goldwyn. By the way, it's a misattribution. It was a Danish politician. But they always quote him as having said, I never prophesy, especially about the future. Right. I mean, in retrospect, 2020 hindsight can tell you that a prophecy was or was not true. But you can imagine that 38 years before Moshe Rabbeinu died, Moshe Rabbeinu is at the height of his power. If somebody says he's going to die, Joshua is taking him into the Holy Land, that Joshua would be not, by the way, not just nervous that they are false prophets, but that he is going to be somehow implicated in what they're saying. Right. So when he heard this, he got very upset. And by taking a stand, he showed that he was not interested in assuming the leadership role prophesied by the Ameda. That's why he blurted it out, to convey, by the way, that's why he used the word Adoni, my master. My master, Moshe Kalaim. Well, Otherwise, why didn't he just say Kalaem? He didn't have to say Adoni Moshe. He said it to demonstrate his, uh, um, he, that he held Moshe Rabbeinu to be the leader. He may have meant either one of two things with his suggestion that Moshe locked them up, put them in jail. The confinement would be temporary until the matter came to trial. Perhaps he meant that they should be banished from this world. Not kala'em, but olam hazeh. But in terms of the physical, you know, put them in jail. But kalaem, get rid of them. You can't have such people because they're going to undermine your leadership and the project that we are a part of. Either possibility is in accord with the two views we have quoted regarding Eldad and Maydad whether they belong to the elders. I'm going to leave it here, but you see that this story of the 70s Ekenim has so much more to it. First of all, in terms of the numbers. Second of all, in terms of the actual process itself and what happened as a result of two of the people not participating in the process. Thank you.